0: For the love of home. Today in New York, Donald Trump's eldest son, Don
1: Jr., took the stand in the civil fraud case against the former president and his family and his business. Down in D.C. and in Florida, judges issued orders in both of special counsel Jack Smith's criminal cases against Donald Trump. The D.C. case involving Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and the Florida case centered on the former president's unlawful retention of classified documents. So a flurry of legal action today from Mr. Trump. And I'm going to get some expert legal help breaking down all of that in just a second. But perhaps the biggest legal news of today was this. The federal judge in charge of the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, Judge Aileen Cannon, who was, of course, appointed by President Trump, Today, Judge Cannon signaled that she may push back the date of Trump's trial in that case. The trial was originally scheduled to start at the end of May next year. That would put it a few months after Super Tuesday and a few months before the Republican National Convention, right in the eye of the 2024 election storm, if you will. Now, Judge Cannon did not set a new date today, but in court, she said that she has a hard time seeing how the current trial schedule would work. Cannon's comments today came after Trump's legal team filed a very specific request before the court early last month, asking to delay the trial until at least mid-November 2024. At the time, that request felt more comical than anything else. At least mid-November 2024. Hmm. I wonder why. What could be happening at the beginning of November 2024? But now it is a very live issue as to whether or not that fairly transparent request on the part of Trump's team, whether that request might have found a sympathetic ear. If the end of May is too early in Judge Cannon's eyes, then there's not much runway left until the primaries are officially done and the general election is in full swing. Would Judge Cannon be willing to schedule a trial in the middle of a general election? Or is it now possible that Donald Trump may not face trial in this case, which is arguably the most clear-cut criminal indictment he has been charged with, until after the 2024 election? That may be the most important decision Judge Cannon makes in this entire case, particularly in light of some explosive new reporting out of The New York Times today. Today, The Times is out with some incredible new details about a master plan developed by former Trump administration officials, including immigration hardliner Stephen Miller. Miller, along with other controversial Trump advisors, is drawing up a plan for what Trump will do if he wins the 2024 election. Now, the top line of the story is that these individuals want to get rid of all the quote unquote traditional legal conservatives that typically make up a Republican administration and, indeed, were hired and fired with some regularity in the first Trump administration. And instead, these officials want to fill the executive branch with lawyers willing to do whatever Trump wants. I really cannot stress just how far the New York Times reports the Overton window has shifted here. The most important conservative legal group in this country is the Federalist Society. For decades, it has been the core of the conservative legal movement, stacking the judicial and legislative and executive branches with as many conservatives as possible. But The New York Times reports tonight that on the Trump aligned far right, the phrase Federalist Society has now become a slur, a shorthand for a kind of lawyerly weakness. The Federalist Society that brought you Sam Alito and Antonin Scalia. As the Times puts it, the move away from the group reflects the continuing evolution of the Republican Party in the Trump era and an effort among those now in his inner circle to prepare to take control of the government in a way unseen in modern presidential history. People close to the former president say they are seeking out a different type of lawyer committed to Trump's America first ideology. They want lawyers in federal agencies and in the White House who are willing to use theories that more establishment lawyers would reject to advance Trump's cause. This new mindset matches Mr. Trump's declaration that he is waging a final battle against demonic enemies populating a deep state within the government that is bent on destroying America. Reading between the lines here, the most out there Trump aides like Stephen Miller are putting together lists of legal minds that they want in a potential second Trump administration. And the litmus test here isn't whether a conservative lawyer is a conservative or even conservative enough, but instead, whether a lawyer is willing to let Donald Trump test the bounds of legal thinking and concentrate power for himself. And that includes the Justice Department. The Times reports that advisors are likely to follow Mr. Trump back into pow- who are likely to follow Trump back into power, view White House authority to direct the Justice Department as proper under the so-called unitary executive theory. That is the theory popular on the right that says all executive branch officials should be under the direct command and control of the president. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, former federal prosecutor and co-host of The Essential podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Thank you for being here tonight, Andrew. Before we get to the legal news today, I found this New York Times reporting staggering. Um, The lengths to which Trump wants to push everything to an area that no one, uh, not even a gray area, a a dark black hole where the law has not gone before. Kenneth Chesbrough, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. These are Trump's lawyers who are now criminally indicted. Those are the kinds of folks or the actual folks that Trump would like to have in the White House making big decisions if he wins in 2024. Your reaction?
2: Uh, This is the model of Roy Cohn. Uh, I mean, we are talking about... um, Not a legal system. This is an extra legal system. Uh, You know, my issue is not with the federal society. It is not, oh, I disagree with the opinion of Pat Cipollone or Don McGahn. And I think it's wrong to be thinking of it as, you know, liberal versus federalist society in terms of those are legitimate differences. And you can have really real debates about it. But there are people who have lines. Uh, Don McGahn, had a real line. He was not willing to lie for the former president. Pat Silploney was not willing to engage in insurrection. Now, I know a lot of people would say that's not a high bar. You're not willing to commit a crime. But they were willing to say no. They were acting as lawyers within their own set of principles. This is taking a playbook out of fascist authoritarian Mm -hmm. regimes where lawyers are part of the tools of giving a veneer of legitimacy to authoritarians to make it appear that they're staying within the law when they're not.
1: What so shocks me is that these lawyers seem absolutely willing to be used as tools. It's as if there's no self-respect for the knowledge that they have had, they've accrued as professionals and as, as people who have graduated from law school.
2: So... We're not immune in the legal profession you've seen it in journalism you see it on the hill you see it in all sorts of ways where power and money has an insidious effect on people um, in terms of their integrity it is not a good thing for my profession when you think about the fact that there are there are good and sincere um, conservative and liberal lawyers. This is we're talking about people who are being picked because they won't say no. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very, very different discussion. Um, and, you know, people ha- you know, that's just part of human nature is that some people are not you know, brought up to be able to have the test of. Can you go home and look at yourself in the mirror?
1: I, I, I was also stunned to see that the Federalist Society is being referred to in Trump circles as a bunch of squishes. I mean, these are the people on the Supreme Court alone who are responsible for a radical transformation of American society in the image of far-right conservative ideology. Uh, What is your reaction to that, just in in terms of— Whether alienating the Federalist Society in terms of Donald Trump's priorities might somehow be a good thing for broader democracy to not have them aligned anymore, does that help normalize things? Well,
2: I I do think we've already seen some of that. I mean, for instance, it's Federalist Society scholars who had the view that the former president is not capable and it should be disqualified from running again. Um, It's Federalist Society um, White House counsels who have said no to the former president. So um, I think we're already seeing that split. Um, and, you know, it used to be that you saw that in terms of Bush Republicans, yeah. which now I think are sort of otherwise described as Democrats. Yes. Um, yes. So there already is that split. Um, and it tells you just how far. Uh, Trump has taken the country and certainly the Republican Party, which, you know, my friends who are Republicans say that they don't really have a party anymore.
1: Uh, One wonders, you know, how that plays out in the context of the trials that are unfolding right now. Eileen Cannon, Eileen Cannon is a Federalist Society judge. Um, It remains to be seen the degree to which she is going to be sympathetic to Donald Trump. The suggestion today that she may move the trial date, how how do you how do you parse her words on this? Yeah. I know it's difficult.
2: So it's fascinating because remember she was reversed twice by the Eleventh Circuit by very very conservative um, judges, and that's an example of judges who are like you know what we didn't sign up for that. We we are still adhere to what the law is um, and don't paint us with the same brush. Um, I think it's perhaps too early to tell, um, but the signs are not good. Um, She comes with a history where she was reversed twice um, in quite spectacular fashion by the 11th Circuit and making decisions that weren't close. I mean, they were off the charts. Um, And that is to your point about how we began our conversation was Donald Trump looking for lawyers like that. Um, The idea that the trial would be pushed off, I've read all the papers, there is no reason to put the trial off, no legitimate reason. Um, This is a minor dispute about discovery where this is still months and months away. Uh, and there is a very narrow window to have this trial, so it remains to be seen what she'll do. She could just push it off a little bit, which would be a sign, you know, maybe a few, couple weeks. Yeah, I was, um, what is a
1: little bit in uh, your book? Is uh, that uh, June?
2: Uh, I'm sorry. Yes, it's like basically June. It's like I mean, because you know, the further it goes, the more you really do have to start being concerned about he is, you know, if he is the nominee, which it looks like he will be, then, you know, you do want to make sure that he has the ability to run for the um, office. As much as, you know, you, you may disagree with his views, he will be a presidential candidate. Well,
1: and you also theoretically want to get Republican, give Republican voters, primary voters, a chance to evaluate whether they want a, you know, criminally convicted nominee.
2: Right. Absolutely. I mean, the, the idea of putting it off, I mean, the counter is you want both Republican voters to know and you want the general elector to Know, of course. Whichever way the trial goes, they should have the benefit of that information. And I
1: just meant that in the context of pushing yeah. it till May is already quite late. You're going to have a nominee by July. It, 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 there's right. very little running room here.
2: Absolutely. And she, she suggested that the argument was that she doesn't want to run into the March trial date that Judge Chutkin has. But that trial is not scheduled to last all that long. Um, you know, um, that's where Jack Smith is a so you know, is very much like, I'm going to try this case, I'm going yeah. to get in, and I'm going to get out. So he knows that he wants to have this second trial. So uh, it's not a great argument for her to be like, well, I'm concerned about that. And if she really were concerned, the way you deal with that is the way Judge Chutkin dealt with it. She called the New York judge to say, uh, is it OK if I schedule it because I know you have a trial? Judge Cannon, there is nothing improper at all. It would be proper for her to call Judge Chutkin and say... I want to make sure that this is going to be okay if I do this. I don't want to. I want to make sure my trial can go, and I'm not jamming you up.
1: Are they calling each other? Do you, I mean, first of all, it's hard to imagine Tanya Chudkin and Aileen Cannon talking on the phone given their the disparity in sort of experience and outlook. Yeah. But well, is it, someone organizing this? Is someone make? Is there a phone tree somewhere happening?
2: Well, the normal process when you have this is the judges are adults. They call each other. I mean, Judge Chudkin announced that she said, "I." I've called the state court judge, there'd be nothing wrong at all with the judges speaking to, to each other. They're both federal Article Three judges. Um, and there's a, there's a certain amount of collegiality and respect and decorum that goes with that.
1: Collegiality, respect and decorum, things that if you believe the New York Times are on their way out if Trump wins in another term in the White House. I know that's hard for a lot of people to hear that sentence, but the reporting is essential. Andrew Weissman, thank you for joining me tonight. Really Welcome. appreciate it. We have a lot more to come this evening, including the latest unbelievable developments in the George Santos saga, plus Donald Trump Jr., the first of the Trump family to take the stand in the civil fraud trial in New York City. We're going to dig into that with Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times reporter Sue Craig. That's coming up next.
0: For the love of home.
1: Today in a Manhattan courtroom, Donald Trump's eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., took the stand in the New York civil fraud, civil fraud case against the Trump family and the Trump organization, where Trump Jr. is the executive vice president. Donald Trump is the first of Trump's adult children to testify. His siblings and his father are slated to testify later this week and the next. Today, Mr. Trump spent most of his time on the stand, putting distance between himself and the questionable financial statements that are at the heart of this case. As a reminder, Attorney General Letitia James alleges that Donald Trump and his top executives, including his sons, conspired to inflate their wealth on financial statements by billions of dollars. And the judge in this case, Judge Arthur Engoron, has already ruled that fraud was committed. So what is left to be decided here is how much the Trumps are going to pay for that fraud. Joining me now is Suzanne Craig, investigative journalist and one of the lead reporters in the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning investigation into Trump's finances. Sue, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So Donald Trump Jr., Uh, how plausible is it that he really didn't know what was going on with the company finances?
4: I I find it very unlikely. I mean, anything is possible, but this is somebody who was um, a senior officer of the company making the last data that we have when the new york times obtained a lot of their tax information was 2 million dollars a year once his father went into the white house it was a substantial increase from what he was making and it was a nod to how much more responsibility that he was going to be taking on and he was put in as a trustee when donald trump became president he set set up a trust and the idea was is that Don, Don Jr. and Eric his brother would go and would be essentially overseeing the, the company. Eric wasn't uh, wasn't a trustee but Don Jr was and Eric has been probably more involved in running the company but Don Jr. had this very um, central role as a trustee
1: in the in the trial today we didn't sort of get to the goods as it were right no. there's more to come tomorrow. Right. What is your expectation in terms of the you know sort of the, the attitude the prosecutions going to take here? And also, what's your expectation for Eric Trump, who, by all outside assessments, actually knows even more than Don Jr. knows? Right.
4: So I think it's they're not created equal in terms of their roles in the company. And I think with Don Jr. um, today, he just he, you know, stepping back now in the weeks before leading up to this, he hasn't been a presence in terms of a lot of the conversations just about how much he was involved. You're not hearing people say, I went to Eric or I went to Don Jr. and I talked to him about this. I I went to, you know, you're hearing I went to Eric and I went to Ivanka and they come up in terms of decisions that were made. Um, But he's still... You know, his role in the financial statements, I think, is what we're going to get into tomorrow. It started right at the end of the day, and it was interesting. He had a very friendly demeanor for most of the day. The attorney general was taking a very uh, aggressive stance, the Mm -hmm. lawyer that was representing the attorney general. But at the end, when they got down to some questions about his role in those financial statements, those are the statements that were submitted to the financial institutions that are at the heart of this case and, and showing that they submitted false documents to financial institutions. And these statements, the question was, how much was he involved and what did he know? And he walked right away. He said, I didn't have any involvement. That's what we hire lawyers for. And then he kind of walked that back a bit and said, well, I may have had them, but I didn't know they were what I was saying was going into the calculations for the financial statements. So sure. he really thread that. So I think that's, we're going to hear more of that tomorrow. And I think a lot more aggressive questioning on that issue. And then Eric will be really interesting cuz Eric's really been the member of the family that has been running the, the organization R- really has been and how he and when you're here you've heard a lot about people's dealings with Eric Trump leading up till now so I think he is going to take a fair bit of time for the attorney general to go through and it's going to be a real focus
1: Ivanka has had her role in this effectively thrown out by an appellate court, but she is testifying. And it sounds like it's an open question because Don Trump, Don Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump would be the ones effectively prevented from doing business if Judge Angoran so decides here in New York City. And there's a question about whether the management of the Trump organization could be transferred
4: to Ivanka Trump. Is that right? If she if she chooses that option? I'm not in that count. I mean, I I don't know. And so, I mean, I've heard that. I I don't know how it's going to play out. And I think it's going to take such a long time because I think we have to remember even when this trial is done and there will be a number, there will be a penalty, it's going to go to appeals court. It's going to take a long time to play out. And in the meantime, there's a receiver over the company. Right. and, And that receiver will be there to monitor their business because eventually some assets may have to be sold to meet that penalty which could be 250 million it could be less and there was an interesting that before don junior got up it was pretty uh, pretty dense stuff to listen to but the expert who was speaking to how much the damages should be was up this morning and he had said, because of the fraudulent nature of the the documents that were submitted, that they got favorable terms on loans just on four properties that came to more than $160 million. Wow. So that's the stuff that the judge is going to consider. be reading over when he's looking at how much the damages should be. When you think about the kids coming into this, not only is this the company that they have all worked for pretty much their entire lives, except for a year or two in Ivanka's life, whatever is left will be their inheritance. There's a lot at stake here, not just in terms of this is a family business for them and all they've really known. It's going to affect not only what they inherit, it's going to affect their descendants. I mean, this is money that's transferred through generations.
1: And well, and we should also say it's an open question about how liquid Donald Trump himself right. is, right? The Post reports that Trump reported earning income about $14.8 million in paid speeches in 22 and 23, collecting 250000 from the log cabin Republicans, about $2.3 million for four speeches from the American Freedom Tour. He's selling NFTs, which are pulling in, I think, $5 million, according to the list. These are large numbers for all of us. But for Donald Trump, who boasts that he's a billionaire, he's making speeches for $250,000, which suggests to me that he needs cash, Sue.
4: Right, we we don't know what his actual walking around money is. We know that he owns a number of businesses. The New York Times in twenty twenty, we got twenty years of his corporate and individual tax returns, and what we learned in that that a lot of his businesses lose money. So they're worth money. He's got golf courses. Golf courses aren't worth as much, but he's got some valuable assets. But he's also pumping capital into those and they're losing money. So what you're seeing here, and when I read this, it's very much akin to he's got you know, around the country, he's got businesses, but then he's also got these licensing deals that he had where he would get, you know, he would license his name and he gets a one-time fee. And those are very addictive because you just get the money. Trump
1: and, steaks, Trump vodka, and, Trump and,
4: ties. And, yeah, and the, that sort of thing, you're right. And, and, and the speaking fees are sort of remind me of that in the Live Golf tournament where he's getting money to host Live golf tournaments at his courses, that's the sort of stuff that's great because it just comes in the door and it can be used either to plug holes in the businesses that are losing money or for whatever else he wants. But we don't have a sense of we know his businesses for the most part lose money, but we don't have a sense of just his walking around money.
1: Well, and how much money he's walking around money and he's paying out damages money, right? That's a real question. $250 $250 million. That's a lot of speeches to the log cabin Republicans. Right. And it's not tax deductible if it happens when he finally writes. It is not that words Donald Trump does not want to hear, not tax trackable. Suzanne Craig, thank you for helping me understand a complicated uh, set of uh, complicated testimony this week and next. Thank you, Sue. Thank you. Still to come this evening, the president, President Biden, confronted by a protester over the Israel Hamas war as the Democratic Party faces deep divisions over U.S. policy. Plus, Republican congressman and serial fabulist George Santos Faces the music, kind of. Faces some music. Faces tunes in the House of Representatives. What happened there is next.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your Wake Up Call.
0: For the love of home.
1: Back in early September, Republican Congressman George Santos of New York called up a reporter from The New York Times. And in the course of a 45 minute conversation, this happened. I'll give you one story that nobody talks about, Santos replied before telling me how his five-year-old niece disappeared from a playground in Queens, only to be located 40 minutes later on a surveillance camera with two Chinese men. Santos said the incident was the subject of an active police investigation, implying heavily that it might have been in retaliation for his vocal stance against the Chinese Communist Party. So you think it was China, I asked, clarifying? Look, I don't want to go into, like, conspiracy theory, Santos said. But, you know, if the shoe fits, right? The New York Times reporter here, naturally, looked into Santos's story. And a high-ranking police official confirmed that officers had been called and investigated the incident. But they found no evidence of Chinese Communist Party involvement or of any kidnapping at all. We found nothing at all to suggest it's true, the official said i lean into, he made it up. He made it up. It has been nearly a year since that New York Times reporter and her colleague first started looking into newly elected Congressman George Santos and uncovered the extent to which Mr. Santos has been making it up. From lies about graduating from colleges that had no record of his attendance to lies about having worked at top tier Wall Street firms, that's in addition to a slew of improbable anecdotes, producing a failed Broadway musical or claiming that he had employees who had been killed in the Pulse nightclub shooting. And then there was a criminal charge in Brazil for allegedly forging signatures on checks that he stole from an elderly man. In May, federal prosecutors charged Santos with 13 counts of wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds and lying to the House of Representatives. Santos pleaded not guilty to those charges. But last month, Santos was hit with 10 additional federal charges in a superseding indictment, including conspiracy, wire fraud, false statements, falsification of records, aggravated identity theft, and credit card fraud. The indictment alleges Santos obtained the personal identity and financial information of individuals who had contributed to his campaign and then caused their access devices to be charged repeatedly without authorization for Santos's benefit all to which Santos has pleaded not guilty. And that led to five New York Republican congressmen backing a resolution to expel George Santos from Congress. And yet, presented with the opportunity to finally expel a federally indicted serial fabulist from their ranks in the United States Congress, the vote failed 179 to 213 earlier this evening. A majority of Republicans chose to stand by the serial liar and alleged criminal. Only 24 of them voted to expel Santos from their ranks. 31 Democrats also broke ranks and voted to let Santos stay in Congress, for what reason we do not yet know. But for now, the guy who has been something of an emblem of the chaos that is the Republican-led House, that guy will be sticking around. We are going to talk about that and about what is happening right now in the Democratic Party coming up next. Earlier tonight at a campaign event in Minnesota, President Biden began speaking about the Israel-Hamas war, calling the conflict, conflict incredibly complicated. And this is what happened next.
4: Mr. President, if oh you care God. about Jewish people as a rabbi, I need you to call for a ceasefire right now. no. You can't. You can't. That
1: protester was Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg. She is a member of the group Jewish Voice for Peace, which has been organizing Jewish-led pro-ceasefire protests across the country, part of a drumbeat of groups calling for one. Eighteen House members have signed on to a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. All of them are Democrats, all of them are people of color. But President Biden and the vast majority of the Democratic Party have rejected those calls. And the administration has instead supported what they call a humanitarian pause to allow more aid into Gaza. So far, Israel has given no sign that it intends to pause its military operation anytime soon. Prime Minister Netanyahu instead said this week, this is a time for war. Now, the divide inside the Democratic Party here reflects a broader generational divide on this issue. A Quinnipiac poll out today finds that 64 percent of Democrats support President Biden's approach toward Israel. But when it comes to voters under the age of 35, a key Democratic constituency, only 25 percent support Biden's approach. And this this debate is now poised to become a real flashpoint in next year's election. The New York Times reports that pro-Israel groups are weighing supporting primary challenges to several of the more outspoken congressional critics of Israel's military response to the Hamas terror attacks. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for the New York Times. Michelle, you've written so uh, thoughtfully about this, this moment that we find ourselves in. And I wonder what you make of Biden's management of this. I mean, again, I do think it is complicated, but he was very clear at the outset where he believed America's um, allegiances lay and has, been, has refused to outline any kind of red line for Israel in terms of its... Um, bombardment and invasion of Gaza. So I wonder, you know, what you make of the fact that it appears to be costing him quite seriously among part of the key parts of the Democratic base.
5: Well, I mean, I think there's a couple, there's two questions here, right? There's the substantive question, whether his handling of the crisis can be defended. And then there's the other question of how he can handle it in a way that's politically wise. And those two things aren't necessarily the same thing. Look, I think that obviously his strategy of holding Bibi close and embracing Israel and showing a kind of united front in public and then leaking a lot about how he's pressuring Israel in private and doing his best to restrain it in private, um, in order for that to seem incredible to people there has to be some indication of israeli restraint besides just this tiny trickle of you know 25 30 trucks coming in over the border from egypt and so i think you know he said that he he said that instead of calling for a ceasefire he supports a call for a humanitarian pause he needs to be, I think, making that call much more forcefully, making, um, you know, putting much more visible pressure on Israel to stop some of the rampages that we're seeing in the West Bank, um, doing more, I think, visibly, not just leaking that you're doing it behind the scenes to stop these scenes of or if not stop, at least mitigate these scenes of unimaginable horror.
1: Yeah, unimaginable carnage, which is not to say that what happened in Israel was not unimaginable, but the death toll, if we are to believe the statistics we've been given, is just absolutely staggering in Gaza. Michelle, there is also the question of what happens inside the Democratic Party here. I mean, Democrats in Congress are less in a position of power to change what Israel is doing, but it is still a very real debate in Congress what the party on whole should do. And, you know, I I think that there's something to this idea that those who are— speaking out against Israel's actions a lot. All of them thus far in Congress are people of color. You look at the way in which the, the movement to support the citizens of, of Palestine is, is intersects with the social justice movement. I think a lot of people aren't aware of the sort of the, the, the convention of these two movements. The New York Times reports that Biden Biden and Democrats Face new resistance from an energized faction of his party that views the Palestinian cause as an extension of the racial and social justice movements that dominated American politics in the summer of 2020. The killing of Mike Brown, in some ways, was catalytic for a broader thinking of how brown people, the, how brown people in this country are, are treated and uh, in in this, on this planet. Um, Arab-American support. Um, Arab-Americans willing to vote for Biden in 2020 it was 59 percent. October of this year, 17%. Uh, What do you make of that, Michelle?
5: Um, Look, I think, obviously, there's there's different problems, right? There's a sort of identitarian problem, and then there's just the generational divide. And the generational divide makes sense. I mean, there's an older generation, Biden's generation, for whom Israel was a socialist country, right? Israel, and Israel for a long time saw it itself, and and for a time was seen by others as an anti-colonialist project against the British Empire. The younger people have no memory of that. They have no memory of of an Israel whose leaders weren't, I think, openly eliminationist, who didn't have, you know, not just Netanyahu, but some of these incredibly racist characters that he has around them. And then meanwhile, you have, I think the pro-Palestinian movement has done a very good job of trying to link their own struggle, which is not necessarily analogous in all of its particulars to racial justice struggles in America. But I think that they have been very, very good at building these grassroots connections, making these analogies. You know, there's murals of George Floyd in um, Palestine. And so I think for a lot of young people, especially because this is confusing, and, you know, the history in many ways, it's a hall of mirrors of claims and counterclaims. And so people look for analogies and they look for trusted voices. And I think, among you know, for a lot of young people, both what they're learning in school, what they're learning if they're going to social justice pro- protests and what they're just kind of hearing from their peers is it is a um, you know sort of total abhorrence of um, the mod of, of, of is of the current government of Israel that in many cases ends up extending into sort of broader anti-Zionism. And that is a bigger problem than I think Biden and his political team can necessarily address, but they can do things to narrow the divide. One, I think by showing that their strategy is at least bearing some fruit, and then also maybe. By standing up to APAC, the American Israeli Public Affairs um, Committee, which is targeting some of these members of the squad who have tried to walk a fine line on Israel, who have condemned these horrific massacres by Hamas, who've condemned this explosion of anti-Semitism, but at the same time insist on, you know, the legitimacy of Palestinian national aspirations and human rights.
1: Michelle Goldberg, this is such a complicated topic. I keep saying that word, but it is complicated, and it's deeply sensitive, and you put it into context so brilliantly. It's it's really—thank you for your time, and thank you for thought, thank you. your thoughts on this. Still ahead, for the first time since the war between Israel and Hamas broke out on October 7th, a small group of evacuees was permitted to cross the Rafah border to safety in Egypt. Their stories are next. Ramona Okumura is a 71-year-old prosthesis expert. She is a resident of Seattle, where she worked for years as a lecturer at the University of Washington. Since she retired in 2017, Ms. Okumura has made frequent trips to Gaza to volunteer at the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, helping children who lost their limbs due to violence in the region. And she was there in Gaza when war broke out after Hamas launched a terrorist attack against Israel last month. Ms. Okamura had been staying in a United Nations compound in Gaza, but she had effectively been trapped there for 26 days. Today, we can confirm that Ms. Okamura is one of five American aid workers allowed to evacuate Gaza, crossing the Rafah border into Egypt. She was on a list of about 500 people permitted to leave the area as part of a deal between Egypt, Hamas, and Israel, one that was mediated by Qatar and American officials. Today... uh Thanks to concerted American leadership, we're in a situation where safe passage for wounded Palestinians and foreign nationals to exit Gaza has started. The American citizens are able to exit today as part of the first group of probably over 1,000 we will see more of this process going on in the coming days, working nonstop to get Americans out of Gaza as soon and as safely as possible. Joining me now is my friend and colleague, Eamon Mohadeen, the host of Eamon here on MSNBC, who has, of course, reported ex- extensively from Gaza, including during the 2014 war. Eamon, it's great to see you.
3: Likewise.
1: 26 days. Um, for a while, these Americans could have been considered being held hostage by Hamas. They were being held hostage in Gaza, if not directly by Hamas. Right. Uh, what Was this American intervention that made this happen Why did it take so long? It's almost a month for people who were medical professionals helping and staying at UN compounds. You would imagine they would be among the very first to leave.
6: Yeah, I think the position, um, as I understood it from people that were involved in trying to broker this, at least on the Egyptian side and certainly on uh, Hamas' side through intermediaries that are mostly in Doha, was that they wanted to see uh, not just dual nationals leave. There was something that they felt was very sinister about just saying, oh, Foreign nationals can leave, but the rest of the Palestinian population that is being bombarded and being killed and being starved to death has to stay. And in fact, what they were really trying to negotiate a mechanism for was also, which we saw today, the exodus of wounded Palestinians. And so there was a long convoy of cars uh, or ambulances, I should say, that were carrying Palestinian children, some of the most critically uh, injured people, life and death type of situation in those ambulances that were allowed to leave as well so that it was uh, a humanitarian relief for as many people as possible and not just billed as the foreign nationals Mm -hmm. that were allowed to get out of Gaza while everybody else stayed behind and being Uh, bombarded to death.
1: Those images that you see are just uh, wrenching and those are the lucky ones. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge question about how you even begin to choose when you have suffering in the order of magnitude that we have heard happening in Gaza. We know that uh, Jabalia refugee camp, uh, IDF, launched a strike on that refugee camp. There are 116,011 refugees registered there. Hundreds were injured in the Israeli airstrike. Um, Israel said they killed a Hamas commander, Ibrahim Biari, in that in that strike. Um, <clears throat> the United Nations is saying that the attack on that refugee camp could amount to a war crime,
6: amen. One of many allegations that I've made throughout the course of the past several days, and here's why. Um, In part because if you look at the way the bombardment has been taking place across the Gaza Strip, nowhere, and I mean nowhere, is safe. Israel told people to move to the South. The South was bombed. They have taken shelter in certain places like a church. The church was bombed. In a refugee camp where people think they might be safe, They're bombed. So at the end of the day, the challenge that has become very apparent in what international lawyers and human rights organizations are talking about is proportionality. And to what extent you expect the people in this camp to be aware of what is happening to them or what is happening underneath them at any given moment, if you are... you know, on the face of it, accepting the Israeli argument that they were doing this to target uh, a single individual. But keep in mind, and we've seen this, we've seen surveillance video of of home cameras. And I had this on my show over the weekend where a young boy was just standing adjacent to a building. The building gets knocked out and ultimately the child uh, is buried underneath the rubble. And that's why people use the term collective punishment, because you are not aware of who else is in your vicinity at any given moment, right? And Israel says that they warn people and they tell people to leave. In some cases, it's five minutes. some cases, um, it's a phone call. They've been dropping leaflets. But people feel like they don't have anywhere to go that is safe. We've spoken to a lot of people. For example, Wa'il al the Al Jazeera Arabic, uh, a bureau chief whose family was killed. He heeded Israel's warnings. He moved his family out of the northern part of the Gaza Strip. He moved them to the southern part below this specific line that they told them to. And what happened? The building next to where his family was seeking refuge was targeted by Israel. And he lost his wife, a daughter, a son and a grandson. It is a story that is repeating itself time and time again every day throughout this war. That innocent people, civilians, men, women and children, elderly are paying the price And there is no single safe space in the entire Gaza Strip.
1: Yeah. If you focus just on the lives of children who have been lost, 3,600 children reportedly killed. Again, that's from the Palestinian health authorities, Uh, which
6: would be the equivalent of 200000 American children killed in the span of three weeks. I mean, we we sometimes kind of think, oh, 3000, maybe that is a proportional number for what has happened. But to put it in perspective, as the PCRF, the the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund uh, founder told me this weekend on my show, that would be the equivalent of 216,000 American children killed in the span of three weeks.
0: We will leave
1: it on that note, my friend, Amen. Thank you for for your time and thoughts and perspective on all of this. Uh, That is our show for this evening.
0: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories